every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk, and thank you for making this podcast one of the top ten most listened to finance and investment podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Hong Kong. We're also on Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you'll find all the details of how to listen to the show on your smartphone using your favorite podcast app. And you'll also find there my daily newsletter, which contains a lot more business and finance information from around Asia. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the headlines for Wednesday, the 7th of June. The US has charged Coinbase, the biggest crypto trading platform in the country, with operating illegally and widening its crackdown on the industry. The Securities and Exchange Commission said Coinbase had acted as a broker, exchange and clearing agency for investments that are subject to SEC rules without properly registering. The regulator said that had allowed the firm to escape oversight, including guards against conflicts of interest. Coinbase said the rules were not clear. The World Bank on Tuesday raised its 2023 global growth outlook while warning that factors like the war in Ukraine and tight monetary policy are keeping the economy in a precarious state. The World Bank said that global economic growth should reach 2.1% in 2023 compared to a forecast of 1.7% in its previous report in January. However, 2024 growth was revised down and is expected to stand at 2.4%, down from 2.7% forecast in January. The Reserve Bank of Australia again surprised markets and raised its benchmark rate by 25 basis points to 4.1%. Economists were widely expecting the central bank to hold its rates steady. This marks the 12th time the bank has lifted rates in the past year and pushed borrowing costs to their highest level since April 2012. Bloomberg News reported Tuesday that China has asked its big banks to cut deposit rates to boost growth. Sources told Bloomberg that some banks may cut their time deposit rates as soon as this week to stimulate consumer spending and boost credit supply. On today's programme, I'm joined by Wealth Preservation Specialist for Individuals, Enzio von Fahl, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management Hong Kong. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 advanced modestly on Tuesday to its highest close of the year ahead of next week's Federal Reserve policy meeting. The S&P 500 added 0.2%, closing at 4,284. That's almost a 10-month high. The Dow eked out a narrow gain of just 10 points, under 0.1%, to end the session at 33,573. And the Nasdaq Composite climbed 0.4% to end at 13,276. The CBOE Volatility Index, known as the VIX and also called Wall Street's Fear Gauge, closed at its low of the session Tuesday at 13.96, and that's its lowest close since February 2020. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index gave up early gains to close nine points lower, that's under 0.1% at 19,099. The declines were limited by rising property stocks on hopes that a new round of support measures will boost the beleaguered mainland real estate sector. Longfall Group surged 7.8%, while Country Garden jumped 6.2%. 
On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index dropped 1.1% to 3,195. And it looks like a strong open for Hong Kong stocks this morning. Futures are pointing to gains of around 250 points for the Hang Seng. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. We have with us Enzio von Feil, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals, as well as being our regular Wednesday morning commentator. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management here in Hong Kong. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. The US has charged Coinbase, the biggest, biggest crypto trading platform in the country, with operating illegally, widening its crackdown on the industry. The Securities and Exchange Commission said Coinbase had acted as a broker, exchange and clearing agency for investments that are subject to SEC rules without properly registering. And the regulator said that had allowed the firm to escape oversight. Coinbase said the rules were not clear. And the enforcement action comes a day after the SEC filed a complaint against Binance and its chief exec- executive officer. Chang Peng Zhou, who is now together, Coinbase and Binance accounts for half of global trading in digital assets. So, Mark, I notice um, you look at multi asset solutions at uh, Manulife here in Hong Kong. I'm wondering where um, digital assets, cryptocurrencies, where do they fit in in the multi asset picture? And is that something that, uh, that, that you consider? Good morning, Peter. So one of one of the things that we, we always look at is to what extent does a does a new asset class enhance risk adjusted returns to the existing set of diversified assets in, in a cross asset portfolio? And I think most people would agree that over the last five years, the level of volatility in cryptocurrency and digital assets has been very, very elevated against returns which have been extremely unpredictable. And so on a risk-adjusted return basis, actually, as we stand now, cryptocurrencies don't um, uh, figure that attractively against other asset classes for either institutional or retail-oriented multi-asset products. This does suggest, though, doesn't it, that there's going to be quite a big problem for the crypto industry because two firms that account for half of the trading um, there are now under um, investigation. I'm wondering what this means for for the industry going forward. And I was particularly interested by um, Gary Gensler's comments. He's the uh, the head of the SEC, the US, the U.S. Securities Watchdog. He said the whole business model is built on non-compliance with U.S. security laws, uh, and we're asking them to come into compliance. I mean, that's really quite a damning indictment of the whole industry, isn't it? It's taken a while for the SEC to get to this point, hasn't it? Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, The the criticism would be that they are effectively chasing a phenomenon which has been in play for many, many years. And it's only after substantial losses were were incurred on on owners, both retail and institutional in, in the crypto space. The reality is when you start assuming that the assets that are being traded or either some of the activities that are being taken are regulated activities or or securities, then indeed you have to treat cryptocurrencies and and the trading of that like any other financial assets. That will inevitably increase the costs of doing business, but it doesn't necessarily signal the death knell for this as an asset class. All it does is effectively legitimize it. But clearly, some of the marginal volume-oriented activity will be affected in, 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 the, in the long term. And what does it mean, do you think, for Hong Kong and its ambitions to be a trading hub, a global trading hub for digital assets? 
Hong Kong has looked at the ecosystem that's built up around cryptocurrency in Singapore quite enviously, and there's been a huge amount of job creation, uh, wealth effects from that, and, and it's decided that as a financial centre, Hong Kong should also have a capability and a proposition. Uh, that need not be um, dealt a, a, a serious blow by this, but, but clearly the, the emphasis will be on making sure that uh, retail investors are adequately protected once this becomes a, a greater uh, presence in the, in the financial landscape of Okay. Well, we're going to turn to some of the real asset classes um, in in a moment. Before we do that, let's talk about uh, some of these economic support measures coming out of the mainland. China's reportedly working on a new package of measures to support the property markets after Beijing's comprehensive 16-point plan from November failed to sustain a rebound in the ailing sector. And that's going on at the same time um, as China is also reportedly pressurising banks to cut their deposit rates to boost the economy as well. So NCO seems to be um, Beijing is rolling out a number of measures now, obviously concerned about the ailing uh, mainland economy. But do you think these measures are going to work, and particularly the new support measures for Chinese property? By definition, not. China is facing a D-Day, a decision day, where the leadership has to decide whether it wants to really pursue Marxist ideology, which it's been doing, or whether it wants common prosperity, really driven by the private sector. The private sector, after all, accounts for about 80% or 60% of GDP and 80% of urban employment. The, it, until the Chinese government has decided which one it wants, it's going to go nowhere with tinkering around at the edges on property rates or indeed the local government financing vehicles because these are all measures designed to try and outguess what the market actually should be doing. And my old teacher, Von Hayek, always said you cannot outguess the market and what it should be doing. That's for the market to decide. But isn't China, it isn't really much of a choice, is it? Because isn't China's version of common prosperity, it's not the, uh, the capitalist version that you describe, where the markets dictate where capital is allocated. Um, it's a redistribution of wealth, isn't it? That's, that's really what China means by its version of common prosperity. Yeah, but there has to be wealth to, to redistribute. And the the problem is that by trying to go very dirigiste, which is also what's happening in Hong Kong, you're, they, they are killing a lot of the incentive of the private sector to create precisely the prosperity which they want to distribute. So I think it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Um, I'm more for the chicken than the egg. Do you think they will work, though, these property support measures? They didn't work back in November, did they, with no, their 16-point no, plan? No, I don't plan? think so. I, I just think that, again, it's, it's it, at, on a very broad level, it's just trying to, to, to tinker at the edges. Um, and I, I don't see how, how, how they can work, particularly also on the local government debt, um, mm. because the, um, they have rising refinancing costs, public property sector, renewed infrastructure spending. These are all local government problems. And it already stands at $66 trillion, the local government debt. That's twice 2017. So this is they're really digging a hole that just isn't going to get, get going. Mm. Mark, if, um, if, 
these these measures, or every time they're reported, they seem to have quite a big impact on the markets. We saw this big 4% pop in Hong Kong shares on Friday. The yuan rallied briefly, although it's back down again. We also saw some commodities rally, like copper, iron ore, crude oil, um, sort of up when they were first um, uh, announced. But do you think they, these are significant measures that uh, investors should be taking notice of? If you look back to the start of the year, there was a level of optimism in, in markets that, that China's policy mix would shift towards a pro-growth agenda. Um, fast forward four or five months, there hasn't been a great deal of evidence that that is their inclination. And as a result, we saw a loss of confidence in the, the, the cyclical growth picture, the recovery picture for China in absence of that stimulus. So heading into to Friday's news flow, which came out after the market, um, uh, Hong Kong China equity sentiment had really become quite depressed. Mm. And so the timing of this um, headline was, was very, very sound in the sense that it came at a time when sentiment was really on the floor. What we need to look, at for, look out for now is signs of actual evidence and action. Um, it, it is important, even though actually property prices in, in China have started to stabilise, clearly sales volumes remain very depressed. And that is an overhang, unfortunately, from the last three to four years where there was a significant depletion of household savings, a loss of confidence, and people already, as a share of their total assets, already own a lot of real estate in China. So it's going to take a lot of effective and targeted action to stabilise the real estate sector and effectively attempt to rebalance supply and demand. I, I presume also there's some, some quite big problems overhanging it. I mean, you've got a 20% youth unemployment rate, so those people aren't going to be buying homes for sure. And presumably that has a knock-on effect because maybe some of them are being supported by their parents, so they won't be buying new homes. And then you've also got this demographic change. People um, are waiting much longer to get married, so you don't have these young couples wanting to buy homes either. It's going to be quite a difficult thing uh, to, to revitalise this market, isn't it, under those circumstances? I mean, the observation would be that the, the real estate sector in China is starting to face uh, similar demographic and uh, economic, socio-economic challenges that some property markets in the West are facing. I mean, if London, mm -hmm. my, my home city, um, you know, the, the affordability of real estate has been a problem for first-time buyers and, and young people, young professionals, for a long time. And what that's resulted in is, is a lack of new supply of, of housing at affordable levels. And you've seen, uh, during the good economic times, speculative build-up of asset prices at the higher end. Um, so it's become a market which is dominated by the middle and the upper echelons, whereas actually what you really need to do is make sure that the base of the pyramid is, is in healthy order. Enzio, how much do the, the demographics really uh, overhang on this and make almost any measure that Beijing tries to come out with um, very difficult? Well, I think they, they're insidious. They will, they will creep up more and more. But I think laziness is also a big theme. The lie-down generation, a lot of them don't want to work. That's why you have about 20% unemployment amongst the college graduates. Now, they do have something called a flexible employment where 16% of college graduates in 20 and 21 uh, decided that they wanted to actually just go work from home to their own little gigs um, but that's not going to pay for a mortgage either, as you say. And so I, I fully agree with Mark that this is a, a theme that is just continuing. Really, what's, what we've seen in the West is not going to be different in China. And how big a problem is, is local government debt in terms of its overhang on the economy? Because presumably, with all this debt in the, in the system, 
Uh, and I think it was uh, Goldman Sachs estimated, or no, sorry, S&P Global Ratings estimated these local government financing vehicles stand at about six and a half trillion US dollars. That presumably means these local governments also can't stimulate the local economy. They can't borrow very easily um, and it's going to be very difficult for them to take action. Precisely because they, again, are trying to do, they're trying to apply Keynes and Marx, which is a little bit of a hairy issue for any economist, um, they want to have Keynesian stimulus with Marx, Marxist dirigisme. And the, the, the difficulty with that is that the what we in economics call the marginal utility of additional infrastructure spending, the additional jobs being created is waning because how many roads and builds, bridges can you really build? So that they keep on building these things, that gets them into more and more in the hole of debt. Then you have a tumbling property sector, what we just discussed, and rising refinancing costs. And the whole thing is just a, a bit of a, a bad brew. So um, the $66 trillion that the IMF has tagged on the local government financing vehicles, I think that's pretty going. That's pretty more like $100 trillion, frankly, once mm -hmm. you add up all the numbers. And it's just going to get worse. Mark, when you make your list of risks, if you like, and worries that could affect, um, you know, the forecasts going going forward, where where does local government uh, debt fit into that? The, the extent to which there's a lack of fiscal room for the traditional approaches to stimulus becoming limited is is a, is a factor in, in in making us as a base case have a fairly muted forecast for the growth outlook there and um, historically uh, central government in china has wanted to keep its own balance sheet relatively clean and so a lot of the uh, the leverage built up in order to stimulate via infrastructure products and, and so on has been directed via the local government funding vehicles in addition to that as well because of the real estate sector uh, muted cycle they've had a lack of revenues coming in from land sales mm. so they're being hit by both sides revenues as well as tax receipts as the economy is slowly recovering after a period of two to three years of weak growth. And so th there would need to be a shift in the willingness of the central government and, and, it, and the use of its own balance sheet to stimulate, which that has not been the case for, for decades, never mind years. Mm. Mm. And, and they tend to, what tends to happen, isn't it, when, when economic growth starts to slow down, they, they fall back on their own playbook of, of sort of ramping up infrastructure um, investment to try and get the economy sort of ticking again. Is, is that the risk that, you know, they're just going to revert to that again? There, there was evidence of that for the last few months. In addition to that as well, you know, the, the GDP growth pickup in the first four months of this year in retrospect, was catalyzed by a ramp up in, in production of coal, of steel, and so on. And, and that those are important uh, drivers of GDP in the short term. Of, of course, that's not sustainable. And the long-term vision that, that, that China has is to be a consumer-led economy, becoming increasingly value-add and sophisticated. So you need to reactivate the consumer. Um, and whilst um, consumer spending is in growth territory this year, it, it's not growing at a particularly fast pace. And that's why they've had to lean on traditional levers of, of stimulus. But going forward, it will come down to consumption services uh, for a sustainable mix of growth drivers for, mm. the, for the future of the Chinese economy. We, we did see quite good numbers, didn't we, from the Kaishin uh, Services PMI, which, showed, which seemed to suggest that certainly in the services sector anyway, the, the consumer was still um, spending. Obviously not great numbers for the manufacturing sector, though. 
there, there was a bit of a dichotomy between the official PMI data and the, and the Chai Xin PMI data. The, the official PMI data showed a, a slowdown in the composite PMI to 52.9 from just above 54, whereas Chai Xin's composite PMI increased slightly. I think what you're seeing there is a, is a difference between the complexion of, of the indices. So the, the official PMIs tend to lean more on the state-owned large enterprises, whereas Chai Xin is more the small and medium-sized enterprises leaning and, and perhaps a bit more export or outward-facing. So I think one of the takeaways we would have is that the large state-owned enterprises are, are clearly showing signs of, of, of pressure, um, but on the encouraging side, perhaps the more export-facing, more private sector-oriented, small and medium-sized businesses are relatively uh, constructive on, on the near-term outlook. Enzia, we've got some new World Bank forecasts. They've raised their 2023 growth outlook higher, but cut their 2024 forecast. They say that global economic growth should reach 2.1% this year. They were forecasting 1.7% in January, but now they're saying 2024 growth is expected to slow to 2.4%, down from their previous forecast of 2.7%. Um, on the US and China, they've revised up the US uh, to 1.1% from half a percent this year. China's economy expected to grow 5.6%. It was forecasting 4.3% in January. Big changes in just, what, three or four months? Well, let me start with what a camel is. A camel is a horse designed by committee. And what the World Bank and all of these organizations do is they kind of huddle and then decide what is politically correct, what should they be saying I think anybody, as Mark and I have been discussing with you, the, the Chinese economy outlook, for instance, is not good. The American economic time is pretty bad with an excess demand for money, excess supply of goods, even though the market has been pushed up by four stocks. We all know that. So um, I, don't, I, I, I look at these official forecasts with a great deal of leeriness. How can world growth be growing when, in fact, world trade and you speak with any shipping magnet here in Hong Kong, is slumping. How could world growth be growing when consumption is slumping? Property prices are beginning to slump, at least in the major economies. I don't, I'm not getting something here. This time is not different. Rising rates do kill demand. Mm. Mark, let me get your thoughts on the, uh, on the markets. It's been an interesting sort of month or so, hasn't it, really? We've seen this big switch out of Chinese equities into Japanese equities. We've also got the US markets, which is at a 10-month high. But the concern there is that um, it's virtually being driven by just five stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and NVIDIA. They account for 25% now of the S&P 500's market value. Do, do you worry about this concentration that we're seeing now in these huge mega tech shares well just very quickly on japan peter and i'll come on to the us uh, japan is benefiting from a number of factors one um the actual return on equity profile and shareholder policies are improving over time with a greater scrutiny from from um institutional investors there so that that's that's a tick in the box in addition to that as well you know the weaker yen has been helpful as a tailwind for, for exporter leaning earnings um uh, japanese policy has been relatively stable even though the market tries to second guess that the bank of japan's actions and you know, monetary policy settings are very loose there and in addition to that as well because of people's uh, degrees of discomfort with with the outlook for china um they're finding alternative homes for their capital within the asia pacific region and so japan is a benefit fishery market as well as a couple of others coming on to to the us um to the extent that the narrowness of the market is not resolved by other sectors catching up, then yes, it will continue to be a problem. And it's ultimately not sustainable in the long run for such a small number of stocks to drive the market. And concentration risk 
is relatively elevated right now compared to previous cycle peaks. So you really need other sectors to start to, to cooperate and to participate. In the absence of that, then yes, the, the, the market construct will, will take on growing fragility if it keeps going up and being led by such a small number of stocks. Do you think the, uh, the worst has been priced into Chinese equities? I mean, there's been a lot of gloom, hasn't there, over the last month or so about uh, the, the forecast for growth on China. And clearly it's disappointed from what people were expecting at the beginning of the year. But having said that, there are still some positive things, aren't there? I mean, earnings have come through okay-ish for, uh, for, for Chinese companies. The valuations look, look quite good. So do you think maybe the worst is over? depends on what your time horizon is. If you're thinking cyclically, as in sort of six to 12 months, then you're probably going to conclude that a degree of, of, of concern has already been discounted in market valuations. Structurally, though, if, um, if you take what Enzio is saying as, as, as the base case of, of the direction of travel and policymaking and, and the economic model, structurally, um, there are big problems that need to be resolved. In the absence of that, then, then valuation multiples over the longer term will continue to face downwards pressure and there will be a floor under risk premium. So, so ultimately, short term, yes, perhaps a, a lot of lot of concern is factored in. But but longer term, it's still unclear where where this ultimately will resolve. Enzio, one of the things that foreign investors have been saying is, and, and they've been big sellers of the Chinese markets, is they just can't think of a catalyst to be in the markets at the moment because there's so many big things playing against it, like the geopolitical tensions, like the crackdowns yes. that we're seeing on various sectors. It's put foreign investors off and they can't see something new that's going to persuade them to, to go back um, in, into the markets. What, what, what could it be maybe that will um, get investors back into China? Well, again, I'm going to rattle my old drum um, that it's it's this decision whether they want to go more to, to allow the private sector to create that 90% of employment, which it's always done, yes or no. Is it, Are they going to allow it to do it on its own, yes or no? Because if they decide they want to continue being dirigiste, then basically we can, China becomes a Japan and Japan becomes China um, becomes China Japanizes and Japan Americanizes is my bottom line. So I think that it's it's the the key. Th and then of course the second thing that we all know about is that the U.S. China tension is not going to go away. I think that the Americans have been picking a mighty big fight in the run up to the presidential elections, and that isn't going to go away. Certainly not for a long time. Mark, let me ask you about the currencies as well, because we're seeing some movements there, aren't we? First of all, the Japanese yen, it's weakened to about 140 um, now. It's getting around the level where um, last year the Ministry of Finance intervened to, to sort of prop it, uh, prop it up. Do, do you think we might see the same again? And will that provide some support to the, to the Japanese currency? We'd actually identified areas within which the the Bank of Japan might signal that they think that the move has gone far enough, and we we came to the conclusion, man, like it's sort of one forty two to one forty five against the dollar, you know, without being precise about that. And the reality is that interventions historically have typically worked for a brief period of time, but then market fundamentals reassert themselves, and ultimately this has been driven by rate differentials. So a greater degree of elevation of interest rates for longer in the US has started to be priced in again, and whilst the Bank of Japan stands pat in terms of its monetary policy, and so that's led to a widening of rate differentials, a widening of real yield differentials, and that's why the dollar has been appreciating at the end. If that, can, if that, that factor continues, then yes, the, the weakness in the end will, will continue, even with periodic interventions by the Bank of Japan. And what about the Chinese yuan? That's at the 
dollar mark now for the first time since November um, last year. Is that reflecting the state of the Chinese economy, do you think? Principally, it's it's reflecting diverging monetary policy paths. So, as I mentioned, the US Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates. Perhaps we're close to the end of the rate hike cycle. Whereas, actually, there are signals that the PBOC may be cutting interest rates in China, albeit from a relatively low level as well. So, again, that that rate differential point as a driver of currency pairs is is widening most uh, aggressively between the US and China, even more so than the US versus Japan. So, that's explained the weakness there. And perhaps also some market participants would have concluded that the the RMB was was actually being artificially strengthened and held up in in recent months. And and so, this is a case of the PBOC effectively allowing uh, a greater influence by market forces. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. That's Mark Franklin, who is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management in Hong Kong, and also with us our regular Wednesday commentator, Enzia von Fahl, who is a Capital Preservation Specialist for Individuals. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I want to kick off by asking uh, about Japanese markets, both the uh, the yen and also uh, equities. Nikkei 225, back up to its highest level now since uh, July 1990. What's driving uh, this surge in Japanese stocks? And is it something that's going to be sustainable? Because we've had some full storms in the past, haven't we, on Japan? Yes, so the the stock market has been gaining significantly uh, during uh, 2023. And I think uh, there are a number of reasons for this. I think, um, firstly, there's a perception that uh, there's an undervaluation in stocks in Japan at the moment. And we saw recently um, some uh, visits by U.S. financiers to to Japan, uh, essentially about increasing levels of investment. Um, I think also that the level of the yen is something to bear in mind as well, which may may make uh, investment in Japan at the moment quite opportune. Um, And on top of that, of course, let's remember there are some issues around um, inflation coming back. And this has also prompted some shift into stocks, uh, particularly from uh, depositors, for example. Um, As well as that, there there are also moves by Japan to increase the, um, you know, high tech sector as a as a source of resilience um, for, for the global supply chain. And this has prompted some sector-specific increases in that area. And and how big an impact has that had? Because there has been this sort of global frenzy, hasn't there, for AI-related stocks. And, of course, Japan does have uh, those types of companies. It has companies that make uh, the materials that some of these AI chips uh, need. Um, It also has companies that make things like the servers, the cloud servers, that uh, all all this needs as well. So presumably um, Japan, along with maybe South Korea and Taiwan, uh, these are sort of key beneficiaries in Asia from this uh, euphoria over AI. Yeah, that's right. I think um, one of the notable uh, things recently has been the upsurge in investment in semiconductors in Japan. Um, And what we saw recently, of course, with the pandemic and and also the situation in the Ukraine has been uh, some vulnerability to the supply of um, semiconductors. And there's been a a large also, a government uh, policy shift towards investment in this area as well. Um, and I think that 
you know, it will be certainly one of the factors which contributes to the potential output of Japan over the longer term. Um, but there are clear um, obstacles in that regard as well, not least in relation to, for example, the demographic issue, which re remains to be uh, something that Japan needs to address, as well as issues around uh, flexibility in the labor market, which is also something that needs to be addressed as well. Now, the other thing that I've noticed that seems to be going on is we seem to have a lot more activist shareholders in Japan, and they're actually taking steps. They're removing um, directors, chairmen, CEOs of, uh, of underperforming uh, companies, and we've seen this in some quite major companies. And, and as a result, they're forcing Japanese companies to focus more on shareholder value and, and uh, increase dividends, do more buybacks. How big an impact is that having on the market, and in particular, foreigners' perception of uh, the Japanese markets? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's also one of the contributing factors to what we've seen in the stock market during this year. Um, more broadly, I would say that there has been a shift more towards performance-related pay as well, which is also related to this issue, of course. And I think that um, all of these factors are helping to increase the, the perception of um, Japan as an investment location for, for foreign investors. Um, so I think all of these factors, in, in combination with the issues that we discussed at the beginning, um, are contributing to... Uh, you know, an upward trajectory in, in share prices and, and, you know, whether it's sustainable is something that remains to be seen. I think that issues that we see in terms of inflation and the sustainability of inflation will be important factors. Measures to address the demographic issue, which I touched upon, will be another important issue, which will, you know, obviously affect uh, the potential output over the longer term. But, um, I think that these moves are certainly uh, to be welcomed. And, and these companies, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the topics companies, they're, they're awash with cash, aren't they? A lot of excess cash, which presumably now um, maybe we'll see more of that being returned to, to shareholders. So this this effect could continue for a while. Yeah, certainly it, it could continue for a while, and there will obviously be spillovers of this uh, type of development to other parts of the economy as well. And this is something that's very important at the current uh, juncture. Um, you know, domestic demand is, is something that is still, you know, it, it's building up, but I think there, there's more to be done there. Um, and I think that developments that we've seen recently are certainly uh, supportive of improving uh, domestic demand and perhaps uh, sustainable inflation over the longer term. And what about the Japanese yen? It's around 140 at the moment against the US dollar. It's getting quite close to that level, isn't it, where the uh, the, the Ministry of Finance intervened uh, last year when it touched 150 against the greenback. They then um, intervened to go and support it. Are, are they making any signs at all or talking, uh, trying to talk the currency up and indicating that they may do the same thing again? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the fundamental issue uh, driving the movement of the yen recently remains the same as it was last year. So this yield differential between the U.S. and Japan and mm -hmm. some stickiness in inflation in the U.S. has basically, um, you know, flagged some some rises in, in interest rates to continue in the U.S., albeit at a smaller pace. Whereas in Japan, of course, we still have the, the accommodative stance. Um, whether there are going to be um, actions taken in terms of intervention, um, I don't see s signals of that at, at the moment. We're at the 140 level now, of course. The last time we, we were at 150, which was a much more severe sort of a threshold level. Um, but there is some evidence that there is increased speculation uh, shorting the yen. Um, 
at the moment. But um, yeah, I think it remains to be seen whether there would be action taken. And I suppose that makes the economic data even more important then, doesn't it, in terms of that yield differential between Japan um, and the US. And, and what we've seen in the last couple of days tends to support the Bank of Japan's view that maybe it's uh, it's too early uh, to start raising rates. We, we had that uh, data on real wages. Real wages contracted uh, for a 13th month, um, fell by 3% in, in, uh, in, in April. Average cash earnings also slowed, rose by 1%. This rather supports, doesn't it, the Bank of Japan's fear, which is what has happened before, is that it's stepped in and raised rates too early uh, when the economy still isn't fully back on its feet. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, the real wage data that came out um, was over the year to year, of course, which does not really include the, the recent negotiations on wage rises. So, Hopefully, some of that will start to slip through in the next months and um, achieve some more uh, shifts towards a, a positive real wage growth situation. But again, it remains to be seen. I think um, the Bank of Japan will meet next week, uh, 15th and 16th of June. And, and one of the key issues, I think, will be looking at the underlying inflation. Um, so excluding food and energy. And there are some signs that you know underlying inflation has um, also you know tipped 3%. So... Yeah, understanding whether it's sustainable is something that uh, is is very difficult at the moment, and that would be a, a key part of the discussion. I, I would say. Do you get the impression that uh, central banks are winning the battle against inflation around the world? The data that we've seen coming out recently from well from the eurozone, also out here yesterday in Thailand, in the Philippines, tends to suggest that inflation is now um, falling. Do you th- do you think the the battle against inflation is being won? Well, I think that there's certainly been a turning point. Um, we saw this already in the U.S. Uh, back in November when it slowed down its pace of tightening. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, re- U.S., of course, is very uh, data dependent. And recent data coming out of, of the U.S. suggests that it may even skip uh, hikes uh, over the next uh, couple of meetings. Remain uh you know, uh, tightened in terms of its monetary stance. And so I think if we compare, uh, certainly if we compare to towards the end of last year, we are winning the battle. I think there are still some issues to to uh, to get over in, in, in really in order to really, uh, you know, beat the inflation completely. But I think that we're moving in the right direction, certainly at the global level. And, and what is the data telling us about the state of the Japanese economy right now? If I listen, look at what we've had in the last week or so, it's, it's sort of a bit of a mixed picture, isn't it? We had the services sector PMI expanding at a, a record pace, but then retail sales, uh, industrial production, both missing um, estimates in, in April. What do you think is the state of the Japanese economy? Well, I think that it depends on what uh, measure you look at, of course, and it depends on what period you look at the, the change in that measure. I think that what, what is clear is that um, since the start of May, um, when all of the restrictions on the pandemic were finally removed, we have seen a clear increase in, in tourism numbers. And this has led to, you know, the drive in, in service sector growth, which you alluded to earlier. Um, so I think that on that front, that should um, increase further um, the, the, the scope for developing d- domestic demand-driven inflation towards the end of this year. Um, I think on the domestic side, in terms of consumption and business investment, obviously accommodative monetary policy is, 
contributing to to growth in that. The external side is something that is remaining difficult. So exports and achieving net exports, in spite of this level of VM, is is still something that remains um, a hurdle for for uh, for the economy. But uh, in in terms of investors and particularly foreign investors, Japan's sort of seen as a, a safe alternative for China these days, isn't it? it? It sort of doesn't have the same geopolitical problems that China maybe is having, but nevertheless, it's uh, a lot of its companies uh, um, operate in China and have um, you know big businesses there in China. Is is that how you're seeing it? That maybe this is a good way um, of, of playing China um, with without the risk. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that came out of the G7 uh, summit at the end of May was it's crucial to really de-risk the global economy. And and that, of course, includes the economies of Asia as well. And part of that will involve um, diversifying supply chains across the whole region. Um, Mm. So I think that, you know, it's important not to exclude any one uh, part of that um, supply chain. And of course... You know, China is a huge player in the global supply chain, and it will be important to, um, you know, remain um, connected to that supply chain, but in a manner which is not leaving one economy in particular exposed or uh, in, in any way vulnerable. And and that's something that we learned from the pandemic. That's something that we learned from the Ukraine situation, and that's something that's underpinning, uh, you know, drives by different economies to. Um, invest in particular sectors and, and to diversify their uh, involvement and participation in supply chains. John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. Take care. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my webpage, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guest will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. And to talk about the oil markets, I'll be joined by Vandana Hari, founder of Vander Insights. Please catch me again tomorrow. Money Talk 